the gospel of grace. That's why it's called the gospel, the good news. Grace is good news. Much of the New Testament gospels, I'm referring to Matthew, the gospel according to Mark, the gospel according to Luke, and the gospel according to John, consists of 30 to 35 parables. You say, well, why don't you just give us a firm count on that? Because there's differences, perspectives, at least 30. And then there are some stories that are shared that may not be a parable, but may be a true story, but it, yeah, you're not even sure of that. So many scholars say 30 to 35. What's a parable? A parable is a simple story used to illustrate a moral attitude or spiritual principle. And so looking at the parables or the short stories told by Jesus, they can be divided into basically three consecutive groups. The first of which are the parables of the kingdom. The parables of the kingdom are the ones recorded before we have the account of the feeding of the 5,000, before Matthew 14, Mark 6, and before Luke 9. This was essential because Jesus came to introduce to humanity the kingdom of God, which was, of course, in and through his carnation to where he was integrated and infused himself into humanity so that ultimately his mission of taking the sin of the world could be accomplished. But it was so essential that he would teach and portray the kingdom of God, which is in sharp contrast to the kingdoms of this world. And so the dear Jewish people of the day were looking for a restored kingdom of Israel. This was what their hopeful anticipation was about, that there would come a Messiah, there would come about a king, and one who would cause them to once again to be drawn together as a people who would be a light to the nations of the world. But Jesus came <clears throat> to share, to show, to teach the way of the kingdom of God that was and is in sharp contrast to the kingdoms of this world. We struggle with that, I think, as Christians. I don't think we struggle with it in terms of concept. I think we struggle with it in terms of the practical workings of how do we live in the kingdom of this world and yet not pick up and take on the spirit of the kingdom of this world, which is about power, control, self-will, do it my way, versus the kingdom of God, which is oriented and rooted in love in God through Christ Jesus and is about just the opposite. It's about the laying down of our lives. That doesn't sound very American. American is about my will, my rights. We're going to be the greatest. So we live in the kingdom of this world that we're certain, pretty sure, that we are the greatest. And we're going to maintain our greatness in the world at the same time as ones who follow Christ, it's about dying to self, the laying down of our rights. I don't know about you, but sometimes I wrestle with those things. I have situations and circumstances that come along, and I find myself, and there's a certain part of the flesh that wants to be feel powerful and in control, and yet I hear the voice of the Spirit putting me in remembrance of the way of Christ, which is one of self-sacrifice. And sometimes it takes a while for us to sort through those things. I haven't arrived yet. I feel like I'm always in process. There are new challenges every day of my life. So we have the parables of the kingdom. 
The second group of parables are known as the parables of grace. The parables of grace, it includes all the parables acted as well as spoken that the gospel writers put between the feeding of the 5,000 and the triumphal entry of Christ into Jerusalem, which we talked about a few weeks ago. And uh, the latter of, of the triumphal entry of Christ was in, in Matthew 21, Mark 11, and Luke 19 in those uh, three gospels. So we have the parables of the kingdom. We have the parables of grace. This is like hugely important, and we're going to focus a little bit today on three parables of grace. And then the remaining parables are parables of judgment. Parables of judgment, almost all of which are placed between, almost all, between the triumphal entry and the beginning of the passion narrative. Now, these divisions may seem somewhat arbitrary, but they seem to relate to the development of Christ's presentation to humanity about the nature and the messianic mission that he was on. So at the beginning of ministry, Jesus presents himself as a fairly standard messianic claimant, if you will. He heals the leopard, he gives sight to the blind, he casts out demons, he restores the deaf, he raises the dead, and he proclaims good news to the poor and the oppressed. And then he begins to come across in teaching as one who has authority in himself and not as the scribes and Pharisees. Jesus deliberately engages in activities that he knew would upset the religious authorities. He, he breaks the Sabbath. He associates with tax collectors and prostitutes and corrects, yes, corrected the understanding of Scripture. Do you remember on multiple occasions, we won't take time to go to some examples, Jesus would say, and he would quote the Scriptures, you have heard it said, ah, but I say, you see, in the progression and development of God's heart with humanity that we see throughout the Old Testament, it all points and leads towards Jesus Christ. And so Jesus needed to make corrections. And it blew the minds of the scribes and the Pharisees because they said, it's in the Scriptures, it's in the Torah. Jesus said, yes, I know, you've heard it said. Yes, it is in the Scriptures. But... I'm here to bring about progressive revelation. The revelation that was, there was the unveiling of the heart and the nature of Christ. And so this was mind-blowing, as you can imagine. I know the scriptures say, but I say to you. Now, in the early parables of the kingdom, Jesus talked a lot about seeing seed being planted in the soil and about a harvest to come. He spoke about the fact that except the kernel of corn die, it cannot bring forth fruit. How many of you are going to do some gardens? Anybody going to plant corn? Okay. Okay. I know your address. Corn on the cob. Oh, oh, Okay. But except those kernels of corn die, they will not bring forth corn on the cob come August. And so Jesus would, would refer to the fact of his death and resurrection. First, he kind of introduced it as a concept. And then, then slowly he introduces the disciples to the reality of his, of his mission. And he, then he actually predicts his death and resurrection. And these guys are just like, what are you talking about? You know, and, and they're, they're not totally getting it. I wouldn't have either. Well, by John chapter 6, he now is taking a step further, and he's talking about himself being the bread of life. I am the bread of life. I will bring nourishment to the human soul, bring life eternal. Wow, he's stepping out on the limb now. Along the way, though, in the chapters of the Gospels, we see Jesus putting distance between himself and what the temple stood for in Judaism. 
We see in Luke, uh, uh, he declines Satan's challenge to jump off the pinnacle of the temple so he could be caught by angels. And then Jesus would go throughout the countryside and he would pluck grain on the Sabbath and then he would justify it, knowing that it was breaking the law. And then he even said, hey, he said, I just want to remind you that the priests themselves profane the Sabbath by eating the bread of his presence. And he kind of justified what he did. Guys, can you see? I mean, Jesus was radical. Man, he, he literally came and it, his, his thinking and his message and his mission was so contrary to the ways of religious thought. And I would say it's very contrary to some of my natural thinking and my natural bent, as it is for most of us, if not all of us. And so sometimes I find myself in this like quandary because here's what my natural inclination would be, and I can I can give all the reasons of why it's right and good and moral and everything, and yet the Spirit of God is saying, yes. But here's the way of Christ. Let's go over to Matthew chapter 17 and dive in to what I believe is the first parable of grace. Matthew chapter 17. I'm reading out of the NASB. I'm actually using the 2020 version where they just updated, uh, updated some of the, the uh, words. <clears throat> and this is concerning the temple tax. Matthew 17, verse 24. When they came to Capernaum, those who collected the two drachma tax came to Peter and said, does your teacher not pay the two drachma tax? He said, yes. And when he came to the house, Jesus spoke to him first saying, what do you think, Simon? From whom do the kings of the earth collect customs or poll tax from their sons or they're strangers. When Peter said, well, from strangers, Jesus said to him, oh, so then the sons are exempt. However, so we do not offend them, go to the sea, throw a hook, take the first fish that comes up, and when you open its mouth, you will find a, stat a, a stator, Take that and give it to them for you and me. Now, the value of a statter was worth four of the drachma. Okay? Jesus now in this passage, and we're not going to kind of like exegete it, but let me just give the overall perspective here. He's drawing a parallel how that spiritual sons of God don't owe a tax to the religious system and activities so as to feel approved of by God for having contributed to the temple system. We're sons of God. However, at the same time, Jesus walked in this place of honor so as not to offend now, it, it's a little tricky because sometimes it's like Jesus doesn't care if he offends or not, right? In this instant, instance, he, he, he says, so as not to offend, though, let's pay the tax. But I want to show you something. And so Jesus tells Peter to go and, and, and catch a fish. But, he, but he, he identifies it. He says, the first fish that you have will have this stator in its mouth. And, and basically saying this will be sufficient. So what it really is is an opportunity to show honor, but to see how God provides the funds in order to honor the Jewish heritage, the Jewish system by which came Jesus to actually save the world. So it wasn't like Jesus was rebelling against the whole plan of God and the means by which he entered the world. He was not, it's not an act of rebellion in any way. It was to help to delineate and help the disciples understand 
there is a kingdom truth that is more essential and foundational to our lives than what has been known as the religious system, even which God approved of and worked with in former years. But this was a shift in a time of transition. So Peter catches the fish, and there were funds sufficient for both Jesus and himself. Now, keep in mind, the other disciples had to pay tax out of their own resources. But it's a story of the prophetic grace of God. Of God's prophetic grace and provision to fulfill the Old Testament law which Christ came to do. He didn't just come and say, ah, oh, this was meaningless, worthless. Now, he made clear the limitations on Old Testament law and what it could and could not do, okay? And he wanted people to understand now to help to shift their focus and understanding of God's <coughs> salvation through Christ as Savior and provider of the world. Now, the thoughts I want to share with us here today are along this line. The whole human race is desperately religious. Wherever you go in the world, you will find that the whole human race is religious. And it goes along this line. What can I do to appease God lest I be punished now and forever? People around the globe carry these concerns. In virtually every nation of the world, amongst all the peoples of the world, and there's not a human on earth that has ever been immune to the temptation to think that relationship between God and humanity can, can, can be repaired from, um, well, from our side by some effort of our own. It doesn't matter where you go on the earth. You see human effort because there's this built-in sense and desire to want to please God. Some supreme being, whether it's defined or not, I, I, I need to please and therefore I need to appease the God, God or gods um, so as to minimize the consequence of my own wrongdoing and punishment here in this life and forever. A correct belief system, a prayer, a cultic performance, whether it be ethical achievements or some superstitious behaviors, is not enough. We humans somehow think that God can be conned into being favorable to us by our right beliefs. And we really emphasize the finer points of our belief systems. And most of us, we grapple with these things. And sometimes someone will say, well, what do you believe about this or that? And if it's along religious lines, sometimes you have some pretty clear understanding within yourself. And sometimes you may not, but you have this felt need. Boy, I guess I need to get that figured out. And that's not a bad thing, okay? But sometimes I think that we somehow can feel much better about ourselves if we have our belief system in place. Um, and, and if we have our, our, our good morals and, and, and the different forms of sacrifice, if you will, in terms of serving others and giving money or whatever the case may be, and so what we can wind up doing in a very subtle way, engage in some form of bargaining with God. Now, we wouldn't call it that. We're all smart enough here in our general culture and society like, well, of course, I don't bargain with God. But I think it can subtly actually be activated within us without even our realization. Because we certainly want to Make sure we're okay with God. That's not a bad desire, by the way. But as the writer of Hebrews pointed out long ago, such behavior is nonsense. 
I, I was reading uh, Hebrews chapter 10. I was going to read it this morning, but I, it's just going to take way too long. It's so beautiful. You know, Jesus, the writer of Hebrews makes it very clear that God says, I never desired sacrifice. What? You never desired sacrifice? Now you tell us? But it shows how a loving God is willing to work with humanity. He comes down to humanity. Understand, the people of the day, even go back to Abraham's day, were pagan. And it was about sacrifice, even human sacrifice to appease God. So they thought. So humanity understood sacrifice as somehow a means to try to connect with, to please God. He comes and works within the context. But later on, God himself says, it never pleased me. Go read Hebrews. And actually, Hebrews quotes uh, Psalms. And I forget if it's Psalms 8 or, or Psalms 40 it is. And, 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 and right there it is. The psalmist talks about that. It, it never pleased you. You never desired sacrifice. I want to read a quote by uh, Watchman Nee. Uh, this comes out of his book, The Normal Christian Life. Some of you may have read this years back. I quote, grace means that God does something for me. Law means that I do something for God. God has certain holy and righteous demands which he places upon me. That is law. For if law means that God requires something of me for their fulfillment, then deliverance from law means that he no longer requires that from me, but himself provides it. Law implies that God requires me to do something for him. Deliverance from law implies that he exempts me from doing it and that in grace he does it himself. I need do nothing for God. That is deliverance from law. This is the truth that Jesus was slowly trying to introduce the people of his day toward. And this was not an easy thing to get a hold of. And I would suggest that as humankind, we still struggle. We feel like we've got to do something. I've got to be responsible I have to do something. And we actually can, can make the Christian walk. We're coming to Christ initially, and then the Christian walk, much more difficult than it needs to be. Oh, have I ever been there? I can look back over my life, and I've expended way too much energy trying so hard and coming up short again and again and again and again. So I, I understand how this works. You see, vain religion preaches that something has to be done about our relationship with God. And it remains unqualified bad news. <laughs> it's actually a devilish game of winners and losers that is purported. Life is about winners and losers. You want to be on the winning team? Ah, here's what you need to do. Now, to be on the winning team, well, you need to get saved, and you need to do this to get saved, and then you need to do this to stay in the grace of God. Kind of along that line, now maybe that's totally foreign to you guys, but in my background, that's kind of how it worked. Here's what you need to do. And Jesus is blowing away the minds of the disciples and all the Jewish people and the leaders of that day. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. Paul, wherever he went, he kept coming up. He would go and preach the grace of God and go into his community. And then the Judaizers, the keepers of the law, would come in behind him 
and try to correct people, say, yeah, yeah, now Paul took this way too far. He's doing that greasy grace talk. Now remember, now remember, I know, Paul just, he needed to be more straight with you guys on what you need to do to maintain your righteousness. And there's this continual conflict. And Paul, in some of the letters, he, he warns them, he says, watch out for those Judaizers. In Galatians, he says, watch out. He says, who has bewitched you? like a spirit of control wanting to come back on you to tell you you can't do this you can do that you do it you got to keep these days you got to keep that day and these holy and on and on trying to bring you back to this place where you're working to please God now quite clearly is that when we can get a hold of the goodness of God's heart we find ourselves wanting to honor and please the Lord right And in doing so, we begin to develop this heart of honor that says, oh, this thinking, this behavior doesn't please my Lord, okay? And so, but it's as a result of experiencing his love in his life that motivates us rather than we trying to find a way, a means by which we can attain to the righteousness of God that will that we think will please him. You see, we feel amazing about ourselves if we do and say the right things to gain God's approval. And then what we always tend to do is compare ourselves with other people. When you find yourself comparing, when you find yourself looking at yourself and comparing yourself with other people, it is an indicator that we're not living in the fullness of grace. Ah. When you find yourself noticing the failures of other people and those things become prominent in your mind, their failures, their sins, it means I have a lot to grow in concerning the grace of God in my own life. And the more that I realize the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ in my life and my heart is healed and purified, I don't get uptight about the sin of other people's lives. I don't find myself comparing. Yeah, that's how it works. We want to compare ourselves when we're we're lacking in this flow of grace because we notice that they haven't behaved appropriately and now they're going to pay a price for their sin. They might even be tormented while God smiles and we smugly stand by and observe our loved one screams for help, but our loving God smiles and says, well, you got what you asked for. What's wrong with that picture? It's void of the grace of God. That kind of thinking. This kind of thinking traps us in a game that we will always lose. We will always lose. There's no liberation, this kind of thinking, for which we ourselves will be judged. And God in his mercy and love, when we stand before Jesus at judgment, will burn away because it's wood, hay, and stubble. He'll burn it away of our lives. Aren't you glad for that? So any of this stuff that we carry forward into the next life, we can know this, that the love of God, when we stand before Christ, the great judge, in love, he'll burn it away. And Paul talks about, yikes, that's not necessarily going to be a fun experience. For some of us. Well, the gospel of our Lord is good news. It's the announcement that in the incarnation, the death, the resurrection, that in all of this, God called off the game to try to make amends with God by any efforts of our own making. God became one with humanity. So what he did for one, though, let's remember he did for all. The scriptures repeatedly, Paul hammers this again and again and again. As I shared a few months ago, we sometimes present Christ like a Santa Claus who's coming to town to check up on the behavior of the human race. 
He's making a list and he's checking it twice to find out who's naughty or nice. By the way, Christ Jesus comes to the world's sins with no checklist, no tests to grades, no debts to collect, no scores to settle. He said, by the way, I already took care of all of that. But sometimes we can become consumed with this type of thinking. The checklists, the debts that we owe, the scores that need to be settled. Jesus promises us that he has broken the curse of death over humanity. And both the living and the dead will receive a new and restored body no longer subjected to death. I love this passage. I had to put this one in here. It's not like directly on the subject, but it's just too good to pass up. Uh, let, let's put it there on the screen, 1 Corinthians 15. But the fact is Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who are asleep. For since by a man's death came, by a man also came the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die. Because of Adam, the curse of death came upon humanity, and thus we all sin. We don't have any choice in that. We all are born with this propensity towards sin, right? But here's the good news. So also in Christ, all will be made alive. Scripture says that we all died with Christ and he, that all were raised with him. Now, the good, that's the good news. And we need to be sharing the good news is because we have a few billion people who have not yet discovered the beautiful, glorious gospel of who Christ is and what he has done. And so that's why the good news is being preached. That's why we have um, our missionaries, for example, who are um, like Roger and Tammy that we just visited here, showed you a video of last week, who are training up um, dozens of missionaries who go to the Muslim nations of the world to share the good news of what Christ has already accomplished. Look at verse 23. But each in his own order, Christ the firstfruits. After that, those are Christ that is coming. Then comes the end. When he hands over the kingdom to our God and Father, when he has abolished all rule, all authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all enemies under his feet. And the last enemy that will be abolished is death. For he has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when he says all things are put in subjection, it is clear that this excludes the Father who has put all things in subjection to him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will be subjected to the one who subjected all things to him, so that God may be all in all. Guys, this really is like the grand finale. The grand finale concerning this, you know, you have God, the Father, the Son, Holy Spirit, who always was, is, and will be, so they are eternally, and then we have creation, and we have this timeline in which humanity functions, right? And so then here we see this, that God may be all in all. It's like the grand finale and the conclusion of this age in which humans live in what we call the dimensions of time. And so everything that exists, which is not of pure love, will be consumed by the purifying fire of God. Hebrews talks about it, God of consuming fire. Oh, that's what's so beautiful. We have so much scripture upon fire, upon the purification. This is why judgment is so absolutely essential. That's why Jesus talks so much about judgment is because uh, he, he knows how much that there, it needs to be purified because sin and evil is so prevalent upon the earth and in our lives. But God will make all things new as the scripture tells us. And we see in Revelation 5, every creature on the earth, under the earth, and in the heavens will be worshiping. Revelation 5, it's a beautiful passage. He somehow captures the hearts of people. He makes all things new. We see in the book of Revelation as well. Well, all of that kind of fits with 
gives us great hope of the future concerning the grace of God. But let's look at two more parables this morning. I want to go to Luke chapter 15, and let's look at the parable that is recorded according to Luke. It's the parable of the lost sheep. Now all the tax collectors and sinners were coming near Jesus to listen to him, and both the Pharisees and the scribes begin to complain, saying, this man receives sinners and eats with them. Imagine that. And so he told this parable, saying, what man among you, if he has a hundred sheep and has lost one of them, does not leave the other ninety-nine in the open pasture and go after the one that is lost until he finds it? And when he has found it, he puts it on his shoulders, rejoicing. And when he comes home, he calls to gather his friends and his neighbors, saying, Rejoice with me, because I have found my sheep that was lost. I tell you that it is the same way. There will be more joy in heaven over one sinner repents than over 99 righteous who have no need of repentance. The Pharisees and scribes were winners in their own eyes. They were moralists. They were pretty proud of themselves. They did well. They adhered to the finer points of the laws so as to please God. They were winners in their own eyes, but boy, they looked at the tax collectors and, of course, the sinners who were all losers. The religious leaders were preoccupied with the sweetness of their own success and their abilities to please God by doing all the right things. They were moralists and they were proud of it. But the mission of Christ was to seek and save, save the lost or the losers in this supposed game of life of winners and losers. Jesus portrays the divine heart and perspective of the Father that there's nothing more important than the lost being found. This has always got a lot of tension from me. When Jesus, now this is a parable, this is a story that he makes up, and sometimes these are stories that may have come out of the context of a real life experience or some knowledge, but they're stories and sometimes they're fictitious. But, but I don't think that Luke recorded these words except that they had significance. Luke was a doctor. He was very particular, very detailed. That's one of the things you will find in Luke. There are details in the gospel according to Luke that you won't find in some of the other gospels. And here's one of the things that Luke inserts and, and he's, he's, he's very specific about it. But he will go after the lost until he finds it. Who finds the sheep? Does the sheep find the shepherd? Or does the shepherd find the sheep? I, I do take note that it doesn't imply remotely that the shepherd will look for the sheep until he becomes so fatigued he gives up or he becomes disgusted because the silly sheep got himself lost. And he said, okay, I'm, I've had it. I'm done. I'll go back to the 99 who really care. They stayed with me. This one lost one. Dumb, stupid. He it it doesn't care. It says he searches until when? Until he, until he finds him? I don't know about you, but that gives me great hope for our world. That gives me huge hope for our world. Even when we don't see him working, he's still working. We're so fixated on outward behaviors and what we see within timelines. I would that God could help us have an eternal perspective and see the bigger picture. 
I have absolute confidence that God's will will be done. How could I not? He is the supreme one, the creator of the universe. He will not give up and say, we tried. What kind of a God is that? It's not the God, the creator of the universe that the scriptures speak of. He's not a God. His will shall be accomplished. And whatever it is that he wills, he will find and he will bring to completion. Let's go to the next um, parable. The next parable is about the lost coin. And it's right here in the same chapter. So Jesus is really wanting to emphasize something here. And so then he goes, or what woman, if she has 10 silver coins, loses one coin, does not light a lamp and sweep, sweep the house and search carefully until she gets tired, exhausted, and needs to take a nap. Until what? She finds it. And when she has found it, if she calls together her friends and neighbors saying, rejoice with me because I have found the coin which I had lost. In the same way, I tell you that there is joy in the presence of the angels of God over one sinner who repents. What another beautiful parable and story. Did you notice neither the lost sheep or the coin does one single thing to be found, to be rescued? Not one thing. They did not have the capacity. They were lost. All practical purposes, they were dead. They were a dead asset. The coin was a dead asset. The sheep, having been left there, would have died. And so, on the strength of these parables, and I think I have this to put on the screen. Listen carefully. It is our lostness and precisely our sins, not our goodness, that most commend us to the grace of God. We try way too hard to appease God. It is in our lostness and precisely our sins, not our goodness that most commend us to the grace of God. That's so beautiful. That's the heart of our Father and our Savior, Jesus Christ. If in our interpretations of these parables we harp upon the necessity of a sinner having a change of heart or preach that sinners must forsake their sins so they can find forgiveness, that the lost must realize their lostness and do something, We've strayed from the revelation of the glorious grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're not preaching a pure gospel that is so revealed in Scripture. I honestly feel we spend way too much time fretting over the sins of others, which is wasted energy and counterproductive in pointing out. The more that we remind others of what is right and wrong, the more that sin will abound in their lives. Apostle Paul said it clearly. The law awakens sin, arouses sin in our lives. And Paul was trying to grapple and teach the Romans about the grace of God. And sometimes what we think we need to do is to really help people, is to remind them how bad of condition they are and how much they are displeasing God. You can guilt sometimes people towards some supposed decision, but I rarely see it stick and to a true conversion. What we're called to do is to preach the glorious gospel. What does that look like? Let's go to Romans. We're going to end right here. Romans chapter 5. Oh, I love Romans. 
My pastor, as a kid growing up, loved the book of Romans. He spent a lot of time in it. Actually wrote a, a commentary on the book of Romans, which I have and really treasure. What a dear man of God. But he caught it. He understood the grace of God in a way that I had, had known few, few uh, uh, preachers uh, would understand. But look at Romans chapter 5, verse 6. This is fascinating, guys. While we were still helpless, like a lost sheep, at the right time, Christ died for the ungodly. For one will hardly die for a righteous person, though perhaps for the good person some would, would even dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love towards us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Remember, I said this some weeks ago, but we were looking at Ephesians. We were dead in our trespasses and sin when Jesus actually reconciled us into God. He didn't come to humanity. How many of you would like for me to reconcile you to God? Can I have a show of hands? Turn in your survey by next Wednesday. I'll see what I can do about it. Oh, and for those that raise their hand and send in the survey, I got you covered. The rest of you, sorry. In one fell swoop, while all of humanity was helpless, while everybody was dead in sin, he pulls off this thing called reconciling us. Our sins alienate us. We don't have an intimacy of relationship with our Father. And and, and just in one fell swoop for all of humanity, he pulls it off. While we were, oh, I mean, you got to see it. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than having been justified by his blood, we shall be saved from the wrath of God through him. God just hates the sin that destroys us. He loves us, but sin is so destructive. He's jealous for us. And so anything that brings destruction to our lives is something that God says, I'm going after that because it is bringing destruction to your life. For if while we were enemies, Paul circles around three times, while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God. While we were enemies. He didn't take a survey. He didn't ask your opinion on it. He didn't ask my opinion on it. He just said, I've got it covered. Now, this is love unconditional. It's not based on anything that we might do to attain our righteousness and reconciliation. He says, did it, done, it's covered. That's why the good news of the gospel that we should be should be living and preaching is, that we're privileged to is, hey, have you heard about what Christ has already done for you? Wow. Did you know that he's already reconciled you to God? Did, did, did you know that he doesn't hold your sin against him? Against you, excuse me? Did, did you know that he already has forgiven you? What? Yeah, he's already forgiven you. He's already reconciled you to God. That's the gospel. You say, why is that so important? Because humanity around the globe works so hard to try to appease God or the gods, as they may understand. So the good news is just the opposite. He already did it. I thought everybody Shout hallelujah or something with that. Much more, having been reconciled, we shall be saved by this life. Oh, I just want to continue in Romans. We need to wrap her up today. The grace of God is about Christ doing for us what we cannot do for ourselves. Whether we consider ourselves a winner or a loser in this religious game of life, the reality is all of us are recipients of God's grace. God's grace is at work today around the globe in the hearts of people around. And even when we don't see him working, let's dare to believe that he is working. Let's make prophetic prayers and declaration daily over our loved ones. And they look, can look something like this. 
I thank you that Billy has already been reconciled to God. You mean Billy's already saved? Well, Billy maybe hasn't discovered his salvation, his reconciliation, hasn't yet received his forgiveness. But I thank you, God, that you've already reconciled Billy. Now, Lord, I ask that you will open the eyes of his heart. Let him come to a place of discovery of the divine love of our Savior, Jesus Christ. Let there be an encounter with the living Christ by the Holy Spirit that will cause there to be an awakening because just as surely as, as, as all have sinned, Christ has already reconciled Billy, and I thank you for Billy's salvation. Yeah. See, I want to align with what God, you know, the, the, the prayers that, oh, God, you see how sinful Billy is. And God says, okay, what's new? Billy just keeps seemingly, he doesn't seem to be caring about you. And, well, God, I'm just coming today because I really hope that somehow or another, I don't know how, but I just don't want Billy to go to hell. And so God says, I don't either. You know, I mean, why don't we come and just begin to thank the Lord for the reality of Christ and what he has already done. That doesn't mean that sometimes it's weighty and heavy when our loved ones, okay, haven't yet discovered Christ. It is weighty, so I don't make light of that at all. It can be a heavy burden thing that we carry, but let's regroup and let's rejoice in the work of Jesus Christ and what he has already done. Let's have confidence that his will will be done in Billy's life and Sally's life and all the peoples of the world. Let's, let, let's dare to believe it. Let's dare to proclaim it. Hey, let's stand up together. You listen so patiently, and I, 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 I hope that, that I, this was just really up on my heart the last couple of weeks, and, and so... Uh, I hope this was edifying, encouraging into us. And, and, and I realize it's not like that this group has no understanding of this at all. I, I totally get that. But, but I just kind of felt like that maybe the Lord could refresh us in our understanding of the grace of God and our response personally and on behalf of other people. So, Lord Jesus, thank you for your goodness and your grace. Thank you for stirring our hearts unto your love and your righteousness Thank you for your finished work at the cross. Thank you that you've reconciled all humanity. Oh, but yet humanity needs to experience salvation. So many who have not yet come to the saving knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. Continue to move by your Holy Spirit. Thank you for working through missionaries and working through all of our lives to be bearers of the good news of the gospel of what Jesus Christ has already done. Let us be ones who would embrace Christ with all of our hearts and love him with all of our heart, our soul, our mind, and strength. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, as is our custom, we'll have a few of our prayer team here.